Hello, and welcome to the History of Japan podcast. Episode 45, The Emperor's Own, Part 1. This week we're going to begin our first four-parter. We're going to be talking about the rise to power of the Imperial Japanese Armed Forces and their role and legacy in Imperial Japan. There are a few things I want to clarify before we get started here, because this is a very loaded story, and it's very central to a few broader narratives, not least among them, the story of the Second World War. First and foremost, you're getting my version of how things went down. This is true of really every episode I do. History is, to a degree, though not totally, subjective based on the person telling the story. This is why I encourage you to read up on topics from a few different perspectives, if you're personally interested in them, rather than taking my word as gospel truth. However, this applies even more so in this particular case. This area happens to be a specialty of my own work, so I have very strong opinions that will not necessarily jive with others you may have heard. That's totally fine, and in fact I encourage you to think about it, and if you're so inclined, to talk to me about it. After all, the point of this show isn't to get you to agree with me about Japanese history, but to get you to think about it. Second, just in terms of laying out what we're going to be doing here, this particular series will cover the lead-up to the breakout of war in China. We'll be stopping with the start of the war in China in 1937. As a result, it will seem like I'm giving short shrift to both the China War and the War in the Pacific. That's not my intention, however. I think both the wars in China and the Pacific are of tremendous importance, and in fact I want to do separate series on each. At least, definitely one on China. I'm not sure I want to do the entirety of the Pacific War, because it's a story that's plenty well covered in a lot of other material. I'll probably also be doing specific episodes on the lead-up to Pearl Harbor and on the use of the atomic bomb in the end of the war. And I want to save those because they are tremendously important and complex topics. So I'm framing this story as the lead-up to Japan's descent into global war. What I want to talk about is the process by which the military first detached itself from the interests of the government and then overrode those interests with its own. The episodes on the war itself, if you will, the aftermath of the process we're going to be talking about for the next few weeks, are an entirely separate endeavor. So, with that in mind, let's get started. Where does Japan's imperial military come from? Its origins are in the instability and turbulence surrounding the 1860s, the decade which saw the end of the Tokugawa government. Out of a combination of ambition and defensiveness, many of the regional lords, or daimyo, in this period began revamping their armed forces, modernizing them along European lines, and often with European help, to face the conflict that seemed to be inevitably looming on the horizon. The European powers, for their part, were only too happy to contribute what they could. The British, as the supreme naval power of the age, were happily willing to contribute to the efforts of certain domains, most notably Tosa Domain on Shikoku and Satsuma Domain on Kyushu, the home of both Saigo Takamori and Togo Heachiro, if you recall, to build modern navies. The French, meanwhile, were the chief military power of the age, 
and trained many of the soldiers serving the Tokugawa Bakufu. The Germans were not yet considered the masters of land warfare, though that would change in 1870 when they defeated the French in the Franco-Prussian War, so they were not generally requested as trainers, though a few domains here and there did use them. And then, of course, there was the United States. Contrary to what Tom Cruise may have taught you, the United States did not train any Japanese units at this time, but America did have a whole bunch of surplus weaponry to sell off after the U.S. Civil War, and thousands of American rifles ended up in Japanese hands. In addition, a Confederate ironclad warship, the CSS Stonewall, was sold to the Tokugawa Bakufu and recommissioned as the Koltetsu, literally in Japanese, clad in iron. All throughout the decade, political tensions remained high. The Bakufu was already reeling from a series of challenges to its legitimacy, and from some very uneven policymaking resulting from indecision at the top levels. Meanwhile, the various domains opposed to the Bakufu, composed of a ragtag team led by Tosa, Choshu, and Satsuma domains, struggled to build a cohesive alliance and build a force capable of serious opposition to the Bakufu. As it turned out, that latter group would succeed before the former, and in 1867, Choshu and Satsuma signed an alliance, which Tosa would later join, with the purpose of overturning the Bakufu. The three domains signed their alliance in the name of protecting the emperor. At the time, there was a widespread feeling that the Bakufu had failed Japan, which had led to a movement to restore power to the emperor, in whose name, and theoretically, at whose pleasure, the shogun served. The leadership of the anti-Bakufu alliance decided that their forces would march to Kyoto to protect the emperor and support him in reasserting himself. The Tokugawa response was one of vacillation. The shogun, Tokugawa Yoshinobu, was relatively new to his position and was not sure if he could keep the government together if the emperor chose to openly oppose him. The emperor himself was a young, hot-blooded man with the personal name of Mutsuhito, though he is much better known by his regnal name, Emperor Meiji. He was convinced to issue a proclamation by radicals in his court, stripping the shogun of his powers. Yoshinobu actually accepted the proclamation at first, figuring that his best bet was to try and divert war and shore up Tokugawa influence in a new regime. However, Hardliners on his side convinced him that the upstarts could be beaten and Tokugawa power secured, and Yoshinobu, convinced, took an army in January 1868 to liberate the emperor from evil influences. The Tokugawa forces encountered an opposing army of Tosa, Satsuma, and Choshu troops in the area of Fushimi to the south of Kyoto, and fought a ferocious battle for the bridge leading north into the city. For a while, it seemed like the anti-Bakufu forces were going to lose. They were simply outnumbered to a tremendous degree, around 3 to 1. Preparations, in fact, were made to retreat from Kyoto with the emperor and escape to the west. However, three things turned the tide. First, the emperor decided to more actively stake his own prestige on the battle. He had not personally said anything regarding the forces now protecting him from the Tokugawa, but after the fighting started he came out in full support of the imperial troops. 
A banner bearing the Imperial Seal, a chrysanthemum with 16 petals, was dispatched to rally the troops, and a relative of the new emperor's, Prince Komatsu Akihito, was dispatched to nominally lead them. He took a position of nominal leadership, but practically the same man, Saigo Takamori, remained in charge of daily operations. This arguably is the moment when the imperial military was first formed, in the sense of being a military of national scope under imperial leadership and sanction. The second and far less glamorous reason for imperial triumph was a well-timed betrayal by Tsudomain fighting on the Tokugawa side. The appearance of the imperial seal convinced them that it was not worth actively opposing the imperial family, and they switched sides in the middle of the fighting, throwing the Tokugawa forces into disarray. Finally, the Tokugawa leadership had not planned on a pitched battle. They'd expected their opposition to scatter at the first sign of serious pushback. As a result, their forces were woefully underprepared for an actual fight, and did not have sufficient supplies for a protracted siege of Kyoto or sufficient ammunition to simply up and blow through the defenses. In the end, the Tokugawa were forced to give ground, and the Imperial Army scored its first major victory. Yoshinobu, to his credit, at this point decided to throw in the towel. Not willing to start a protracted civil war, he abdicated and accepted the Imperial Proclamation, removing his authority. Incidentally, this has made him one of the most sympathetic figures of the Meiji Restoration. It does appear that he was motivated by a genuine willingness to protect his country from war. He would, by the way, receive a high-level peerage from the government and live out the rest of his life in comfort. However, Yoshinobu's willingness to surrender did little to appease his more militant subordinates, though it certainly did avoid what could have been a far nastier war. Several domains in the north declared they would not bow to the new order, and the city of Edo still refused to surrender. That latter problem was dealt with by Saigo Takamori. He was able to negotiate the peaceful surrender of Edo with the Bakufu commander of the garrison, a man named Katsu Kaishu. Kaishu, by the way, would go on to be one of the leaders of the new Imperial Japanese Navy. He lived a very interesting life, and we'll be talking a lot more about him in an episode down the line. The former problem, however, had to be dealt with the old-fashioned way. A year of hard campaigning was necessary to suppress the rebellion in the north. The outcome of the war was never really in doubt at this point. The Imperial Army simply controlled too much of the country and its resources to be seriously challenged by the remainder. Even so, bungling on the part of army generals nearly led to disaster several times. For example, a young Choshu unit commander named Yamagata Aritomo very nearly got himself and his entire unit killed when he chased a fleeing group of samurai directly into an ambush. Only a relief force led by Saigo Takamori saved him from an embarrassingly final death. Still, in the end, the Imperial forces came out on top, and by 1869 they had suppressed the last bastion of resistance in the city of Hakodate in Hokkaido. The country was unified under the new Imperial regime. The foundation of that regime, however, was still fairly shaky. Though the Emperor now nominally ruled once again, the court had to keep a very close eye on the domains to ensure their loyalty. The Imperial Army was dependent on domain troops, 
And if, say, Choshu or Satsuma decided to withdraw support from the new regime, it would lose much of its military power. Fortunately, a core of men committed to solving this problem did exist. Most notably in the military sphere, there were four men committed to building a military regime directly loyal to the Emperor. Omura Masujiro of Choshu, Saigo Takamori of Satsuma, a young Choshu samurai named Kido Takeyoshi, and the aforementioned Yamagata Aritomo. Note that three of these four men were from Choshu. The ground forces would be, as a result, pretty much always dominated by Choshu men. Up until the 1920s, the majority of high-ranking army positions still went to men from the former Choshu domain. On the other hand, this group was clearly loyal to more than just their old home because they did build a very effective base for a national military. Different people will read this phenomenon different ways. In my opinion, it's simply a result of the fact that this group had a very real appreciation of how important the military was for the new regime, and as a result were only willing to promote those they trusted into positions of power. Being from Choshu themselves, most of the people they knew and trusted were as well. The four men did immediately agree on one reform. The Emperor was given his own armed forces, the Imperial Guard, formed from troops donated by all the powerful domains. This way the new government would be assured of some protection without reliance on the domain system. Anyway, Masujiro was by far the most openly reformist of the group. He advocated for the dissolution of the samurai as a class, and the domain as a political and military power, and the building of an entirely conscript-based army. These conscripts would be trained to be loyal to the state and emperor, rather than to their region of origin. Saigo was a bit more conservative in outlook, and wanted to maintain some of the traditional privileges of the samurai class and the domain governments. For a while, it looked like Saigo's view was going to win out. In 1869, Omura Masujiro was assassinated by xenophobic holdouts from the old Sonojoi movement, Honor the Emperor, Expel the Barbarian, if you remember back to our episodes on the Meiji Restoration. This made Saigo far and away the most influential military figure in Japan, and it looked like his ideas would come out on top. However, as we discussed in the episodes on his life, in 1873 his career would come to a sudden and abrupt end during a dispute over relations with Korea. Saigo wanted to launch a punitive expedition against the Koreans, for a diplomatic slight against the new government. Essentially, the Korean government refused to recognize Japan or negotiate with the Japanese on an equal footing in the matter of western states. He was argued down by his opponents, and no punitive action was taken. Saigo resigned from the government in protest. Kido Takeyoshi, meanwhile, began drifting more and more into civilian politics, and would die in the late 1870s. This left the most powerful military leader in Japan as that young Choshu officer who had very nearly gotten himself killed, Yamagata Aritomo. Yamagata was a disciple of Omura Masujiro, and had led a unit of Choshu's Kiheitai, units of mixed samurai and commoners armed with modern weapons. As a result, he was under no illusions that commoners did not know how to fight, and he immediately set to work pushing through an ordinance for universal conscription. That ordinance was passed in 1873, with provisions for three-year conscription terms in both peace and war times, and the building of reserve forces to be mobilized in case of war. 
It was essentially a carbon copy of France's conscription law. Unfortunately, as with most Meiji period laws, it was written using very flowery and difficult-to-follow classical Japanese, and included the phrase blood tax, leading some more literally-minded Japanese to assume that the government literally planned to steal their blood. There was rioting in several rural areas as a result, not exactly the most auspicious beginning to the project. Still, the law was put into place. Draftees were assigned to either the army or navy, which was being headed by the man who had surrendered Edo to the imperial government, Tatsukaishu, based on aptitude, and the nucleus of a real military force was beginning to be assembled. That force would see its first trials pretty much immediately. Domestically, a series of samurai rebellions sprung up in Kyushu, partially as a result of the decision to begin arming commoners, from 1874 to 1877, with the final and largest revolt being led by Saigo Takamori. These revolts tended to be disorganized, but the conscripts still had trouble dealing with them. The new army ran into all sorts of organizational headaches that caused it to falter in the face of determined samurai opposition. Incidentally, the leadership at the time interpreted the army's problems in a very different way. Noting that the army was stalling in the face of samurai opposition, the leadership declared that the issue was the conscripts themselves. They lacked the spirit that samurai had that made them willing to advance in the face of death. This sounds very Japanese, but it was actually a reflection of common military wisdom at the time. The century after Napoleon was, in military terms, dominated by the idea of the constant attack and of fighting spirit. Motivated soldiers with strong fighting spirit would, it was believed, fight much harder and more ferociously than their opposition. For example, the mid-19th century military theorist Ardent Dupique wrote, quote, The theory of strong battalions, referring to a Napoleon quote that God is on the side of the stronger battalions, is a shameful theory. It does not reckon on courage, but on the amount of human flesh. It is a reflection on the soul. Great and small orators, all who speak of military matters day to day, talk only of masses. War is waged by enormous masses. In the masses, man is forgotten as the individual disappears, and the number only is seen. Quality is forgotten, and yet today, as always, quality alone produces the real effect. Anyway, the point of this little digression is to establish that the Imperial Japanese Army's view on the primacy of fighting spirit was not A. something really new, or B. something uniquely Japanese. The Satsuma Rebellion would have one other after-effect. After the fighting ended, the military could not afford to pay out the extra combat wages it had promised troops, and the result was the first mutiny in the history of the Imperial Army. In 1878, members of the Imperial Guard stationed in Takebashi in Tokyo mutinied and killed their officers and marched north with a plan to burn Akasaka Palace, a guest house in the Western style built by the Meiji government to house foreign dignitaries. The modern Japanese government actually still uses it today. I suppose that factoid spoils the end of this little mutiny for you. The mutineers were captured before they could burn the palace, and 53 of them were summarily shot. The Takebashi incident, as it came to be known, became something of a touchstone for the Imperial Army leadership. They became convinced that the loyalty of the troops could not be counted on for sure, 
and that steps had to be taken to make sure there were no more Takebashis. Yamagata Aritomo was particularly strong in this opinion. Abroad, the armed forces would face two challenges in the 1870s, both of which involved asserting the authority of the new Japan against China. Traditionally in East Asian politics, all states operated as subordinates of China, as a result of China's superior economic and military power as well as its cultural influence. The first diplomatic crisis was sparked in 1871. The island of Taiwan was, at the time, officially claimed by the Qing dynasty of China, but was lightly settled. The majority of the island was, in fact, controlled by aboriginal tribesmen. In 1871, Ryukyuan fishermen shipwrecked on Taiwan and were killed by the natives. Japan, acting as the protector of the Ryukyus, demanded that the Chinese punish the natives. When the Qing government hesitated, Japan dispatched its own troops to the island to exact revenge. The campaign was something of a debacle. Inefficient supply lines and a lack of effective medical service meant that more soldiers died due to disease and hunger on the campaign than to enemy action. This, in turn, helped further solidify the idea that the conscript army lacked the fighting spirit necessary to keep it going in harsh conditions. Eventually, the leadership spiked the football and declared victory, after forcing the tribesmen at gunpoint to sign a treaty apologizing for their actions, though that was really more symbolic than anything else. After all, no one wanted to dispatch another expedition to actually have to enforce it. The second incident was a bit more serious. Tensions between Japan and Korea were already high, and the Japanese were constantly pushing for more power and influence over the peninsula. Nor were they alone in this. Both France and Russia were also eyeing the Korean peninsula as a potential future colony. Korea, as noted above, had already slighted Japan in 1871, nearly leading to an invasion. In 1875, tensions flared up again when a Japanese warship, the Unyo Maru, performed a survey of the Korean coastline without the permission of the Korean government. The Koreans protested, and when a squadron of marines from the Unyo landed on Ganghua Island to obtain fresh water, the Korean garrison began firing upon them. The Japanese responded by storming the island, withdrawing after an indecisive skirmish. Though they had not been beaten, the Koreans were sufficiently intimidated to finally deal with Japan. Signing an unequal treaty, the Treaty of Kanghua, with Japan the following year. The treaty granted the Japanese the same rights in Korea that Europeans enjoyed in Japan. In sum, then, the early record of the imperial military was somewhat checkered, even its successes were looked on as marginal. Still, the following 30 years would see a tremendously rapid change in the fortunes of these new armed forces. We'll discuss that process and its result next week. Thank you all for listening. For more on this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapan. Again, thank you all for listening, and I'll see you next week for part two of The Emperor's Own.